Turn, if you will, to John 3. Jesus talking to Nicodemus that one must be born again. And right out of that dialogue, some debate. We don't know if this is what was said to Nicodemus or if this was the place John decided to place it in the book and let you know. This is how you can know. This is, you can't predict the wind. You cannot predict. There's a lot of things out there. And I would say this. I live with this tension. And that is, I believe in the sovereignty of God. Uh, I believe God chooses people because he said he did. You didn't choose me, I chose you. And he chose us before time because he probably would never want to choose us in time. <laughs> but he chose us before time. Now, I believe that, I think, uh, as strong as I know how to believe it, but I also believe in human responsibility that you have to make a choice and that when you stand before God, it won't be because he didn't choose you. It will be because you didn't choose him. And he'll hold you accountable for that. Now, both those are right there. They're in tension all the way. And uh, just reading about the life of uh, Spurgeon, he couldn't preach in hyper-Calvinistic churches that didn't believe in evangelism because they felt he was an Arminian. Uh, and he couldn't speak uh, in an Arminian church because he believed in election. And so he got shot at from both camps. Because wherever the verse fell, if it says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, don't worry about if you're elect or not, believe. He said, well, I don't know. You, won't, you don't know any of that yet. You don't know. Believe. He'll hold you accountable for that. And so he begins. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Notice verse 36 as he concludes the chapter. Whoever believes in the Son of God has, and the believing is present tense. Whoever is believing, don't tell me you believe one time. This isn't a one-time believing. You're, you're believing in the Son, and that word has, does it mean 
You might get it. You get it the moment you start believing. Whoever does not obey, which is interesting, obey and believing seem to be used interchangeably here. That believing on the Son is the same as obeying the Son. Shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You're abiding beneath divine wrath until you come to Christ. And that's Romans 1. Men are being given up, given up, given up to their sin. This is evidence of the wrath of God presently. The wrath of God is not just future. It is ongoing. He's been giving us up ever since Genesis 3. After we chose sin and rebellion, he's been giving the race up to do what they want. The God's judgment for sin is often more sin. And our sins will kill us. And they're doing that. So we want to look from John 3.16 itself and develop it. Uh, three marvelous strands in the sweetest music, this side of heaven, written in the key of be saved. Uh, it's, it's in the C, C major when it really is developed. It's four C's to help you remember. The first thing is the cause of our salvation, for God so loved. Second is uh, the condition, I'm going to get it here, the cost of our salvation that he gave. Thirdly is the condition of our salvation. And fourthly, the consequences of our salvation. What is the cause of our salvation? This one little word, for God so loved the world. And uh, this is uh, an amazing thing in the book of John. God describes the love that goes on between he and the son in John 14 through 16. It's like this microwave of love between the father and the son. And it's just going back and forth and back and forth. And all of a sudden, these members decide that they will love an object that is hostile to them. Let me give you John's usage of the word world. The word world can be uh, the universe. Uh, they had a word for earth, terra firma. It's not this word. It's really the word that we get our word cosmetics, that which is beautiful. But it came to have a negative meaning, and this is where John 15, 18, the world hated Christ, it says. The world hates Christ. 7, 7, Jesus said, the world cannot hate you, but me it hates. 12, 31, 14, 30, Satan is called the prince of this world. He runs it. He's the power behind it. 110, he said, the world was blind to Christ. He came into the world, but the world was blind as to who he was. He said in John 17, 25, the world does not know the Father. 14, 17, the world cannot receive the Spirit. So the world is seen as this hostile entity that has 
rebelled against God. It's the world of humanity in rebellion and rejection against God and against his son. And yet the amazing thing, such an enemy, such a hostile enemy, while we were at enmity towards God, actively hating God, God loved us. God so loved. There's five characteristics you ought to remember about God's love. It's different than any other kind of love in the world. Five things when he says he loves us here. The source of God's love is his own character. He, he loves out of what he is. God is love as to his nature, as to his character. It is in the na nature of God to love even an enemy. So he tells us, love your enemies. Anybody ought to be able to love their friends, and we struggle doing that, don't we? Even loving your mate, even loving your kids at times. And yet he says, love your enemies. Well, you know, show me somebody who knows how to live it. God says, I've loved my enemies. The cross is for my enemies. For while we were yet without Christ, while we were godless, ungodly, hostile by nature, Romans 5, God commended his love when we were at our worst. When we were at our worst, God did his best. God so loved. The cause of your salvation is God's love. The source is in himself. Two, the quality of his love is it's unconditional. It's not bestowed upon people who have merit. None of us merit the love of God. None of us. So it's an unconditional love. I'm losing this. Three, the goal of God's love is to benefit the one loved. The goal of it is he wants to benefit you, though it will cost him. The evidence of God's love is action. You can give, someone has said, you can give without love, but you can never love without giving. You can give without love. Wrong motives, trying to impress. But biblical love, when you love like God, you can never love without giving. Because God's love, this John 3.16, is it takes on it's the kind of love that will sacrifice for the object it loves. And that's exactly the kind of love he told men that the Spirit of God is able to take a selfish male world of the biblical ancient Near East and take men that women were just uh, subservient. He says, I will infuse through the power of the Spirit a kind of love foreign to all male species towards women. They will actually love them enough to sacrifice for them. Not have sex, not boss them, not have property, not just have somewhere to have a baby factory. They are worth sacrificing for, and you only get it from God through the power of his Spirit because we're in a get-get world. You've got to be out of your head to tell an ancient Near Eastern man, God, when you come to know him, you'll get to acting like him, and you'll sacrifice for enemies, give up blood revenge, and you'll literally sacrifice for that woman that you can use as chateau. The extent of God's love is sacrifice for the object. So the source is God's character. 
The quality of God's love is unconditional. The goal is to benefit the one loved. The evidence is action. I love what Peter Kreft, the Catholic theologian, said. The opposite of love is not necessarily hate. It's usually indifference. You just walk by on the other side, like the Levite and the priest. When they don't want to get involved, I'll just be indifferent. I know where certain panhandlers hang out. Some of them hang out right where I do my banking. It's a great place to hang out. Because I try to reroute myself on the days I don't feel like loving. Because, you know, I'm going to really miss a $10 bill if I give this guy something. Wouldn't that be a waste of money? It's easy. And then I could just say, I'll pray for you. Be clothed, be filled, you panhandler. You don't meet my specification of who I want to give money to because you're not really worth feeding. Well, you wouldn't say that, would you? But you sure can reroute where you go. Reroute. Reroute. God said, I won't ignore the world that hates me. I'll go straight to the cross. And in the book of Luke, the disciples were astonished at how fast Christ was walking to Jerusalem. And they said, slow down, basically. What, what is it that's come over you? I must be in the city of Jerusalem to be crucified. We must get there before the Passover. And they knew, because he announced by this time, two or three times, I'm going to die, but I must die within the city gates of Jerusalem. And they didn't even get that. They put him outside by the dumps. So the, the great cause of our salvation is uh, the cross. I don't know if you've ever dealt with a person, the big word in our culture is self-esteem. Uh, and you know what's amazing? You cannot up your worth by self. If you keep saying, I'm worth a lot, I'm worth a lot, I'm worth a lot, do you feel more worthy? Why, no, it just didn't work. You, you can't pump up your self-worth. It won't work. You know what? All you need, and, and it's based upon the proximity. If you don't like them too much and they say, oh, you're wonderful, well, that's okay. That, the closer into the circle of influence that you value, and just it takes another person to give you esteem. You can't pump it up. Try it. I'm worth something. I'm worth something. You know, I'm worth something. I mean, like, well, why do you keep telling yourself? Because I don't believe myself. Well, well, what do you need? You need a significant other to say it. You see, there's a whole lot of people in this world, I don't want to test this and don't write me any nasty letters, but on one hand, theoretically, I don't care if they ever like me or not because I don't even know them. They don't influence my world. There's a woman I live with, her yes or no means more than a hundred other people because he's a significant other in my life. What about you being able to say, God has said he loves me? And his signature mark is the cross. 
not a love song. Don't you make my brown eyes turn blue. Please tell me some lies. And I, oh, what, what's that got to do with, how about action? What would you do for me? What would you do? God said, how about giving up your one and only son? Second thing, not just the cause. I went a whole bunch of tape the second service. The second thing is the cost of our salvation. The cause is God's love. The cost is he gave up his one and only son. When you use the word son, it's only used of about... Uh, of God about four different entities. God said, Israel, my son, I've called out of Egypt. It was also applied to Christ, Hosea 11.1. But he used it of the nation and applied to Christ coming out of Egypt. Uh, he called angels sons of God in Job 2. The sons of God sang in the morning of creation. Uh, he calls you a believer, a son of God. But when he refers to Christ as his son, he's the one and only unique kind of son. And in John 5, 17, he called God his father, making himself equal with God. And for this, the Jews picked up stones to kill him. He never said, no, no, you're mistaken. You're mistaken. You don't understand. I wasn't saying that. He went on to say, I am equal. The Father judges. Matter of fact, the Father doesn't judge. I judge. But the Father can raise the dead, so can I. The Father can do this. He's going on to prove I am equal. I'm the one unique kind of son. And here we, the Father says, I'll give him for my enemies. One of the moving things in the Jewish calendar is when they come down to Rosh Hashanah and do the binding of Isaac, Genesis 22. It's famous in Judaism. It's one of the most moving stories in the Bible that an old patriarch in his old age would give up his promised son and in his mind had killed him on the way to Mount Moriah. Romans 4 and Hebrews 11 said he saw that God could raise him from the dead, but in the mind of Abraham, the knife already fell in his heart. He said, I passed the test. I gave up my one and only son. Why? Wait, one and only. Yeah, I've got Ishmael, but Isaac is my only one of its kind of son. He's the promised son of my old age by Sarah. He's in a different category. How much did he love God? Willing to give that up. How much would God give to make you his own? His only begotten son, one and only. Uh, I, I would say this. I think we get a little sloppy here. Sometimes we think the cross is saying this. You were worth that much, us. I, I think that's the wrong emphasis. It's God loved that much. See, we, we can just turn it right around. Well, I was worth a lot. No, you were worth hell until the cross. Yeah, that's what you were worth. You were worth being separated because you were, remember, hostile, his enemy, rejecting, opposing. What the cross shows is God's great love for you, not your great worth. But God didn't die for anyone but his enemies. 
If you don't see yourself as an enemy of God and in need of the love of God, Satan is blinding you. God has loved you at the cross, and he never needs to defend loving you another time, and you go the rest of your life, you don't love me, you didn't give me my car, you didn't give me the girl I wanted, you didn't do, and we do all this. You're blind to the cross. If God did nothing else but the cross, he has loved you. The cross is enough. It says it all. Oh, you sound man. What's wrong with the tape? Some, just come up here and just straight. As if a piece of tape keeps falling, bugs me. You don't preach any better than me. You want all the help you can get. Uh, <laughs> God so loved. There's the cause of our salvation. The cost, he gave his only son, the condition that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The only condition he gives in John for eternal life is believing. Now, I, I think next week we're going to do a little study on what is saving faith. Uh, demons have faith. False professors have faith. Many people that go to hell have faith. So there must be more to this believing than what we say. Well, I, I believe. What do you mean you believe? Well, I, I, I agree to the facts. John Murray says that believing in John's gospel is tricky because remember, you read, and many who believed went back and followed him no more in the gospel of John. Many who believed You'll read it in the narrative. As you, and they went back and fought. Wait, you mean they lost their salvation? Now, they, they believed the miracle. They believed the fact. Uh, they were attracted to Christ. He'd get 5,000 together to give them a free lunch. Believe facts. You see, you can't go to heaven by just believing facts. You can't. Uh, did you know the devil, the devil himself, was a witness to the resurrection? And according to Colossians, they saw Christ as he ascended, and he stripped principalities and powers as he passed through the heavens, back to the third heaven, and he just pointed his finger to angelic powers. See, you didn't keep the seed of the woman from bruising your head on his way back. And he reconciled all things in the heavens. Colossians 1. They believed. They saw. They had empirical evidence. They saw the tomb was empty. Even when he was on the earth, there's no demons that are atheists. That's up for Richard Dawkins. He's got to get his atheistic worse off than a demon. Demons said, please don't torture us before our time. Please don't cast us out. And in the synagogue, one man yelled out, thou art the Christ. He said, be quiet. It's not my time. You're going to get me killed too soon. Be quiet. That's for later revelation. Hold off. Demons know who he is. Hogs know who he is. As the demons drove him down a mountainside. Oh, what is the faith that saves? Well, I, I believe. Uh, how many of you have always believed that Jesus died? 
Well, that, that's pretty good. I mean, you, you can teach at Cal and believe that. That's a historical fact. Josephus believed it. Many Jews believe. I mean, come on. It's a fact. You may not believe the philosophically what it accomplished, but he did die. Fact. Unless you just don't buy any history. You invent yours. Get some mushrooms or LSD, and you can invent history. It happened. Whether you believe it or not, whether you know it's saving effects. But this faith, John's going to spend much of the book telling us what saving faith looks like. And I want to develop that more next week. But the word really means to uh, abandon trust in oneself and commit all trust in Christ. I, I will no longer trust. And the word, uh, he, hear me, I've got to give you this word here. You believe into the name of Jesus. And, and it's uh, the way it's originally said, you believe not facts, per se. You believe into a person. He uses a little preposition that believe into the name so that is Paul's phrase, you're in Christ. Well, in John, he says, you believe in the name. I believe in a person. Only a person saves, not just facts about the person. If you miss it, now, sure we believe he died, he buried, rose again. Yeah. Uh, I can't tell you how many kids grew up in this church that know that, think they're going to heaven, and they're not going to heaven. They just learned that at Bethel Academy or some other Christian school. They, they grew up with it around a Christian home, but they're not saved because they've never believed into a person abandoning all hope that I have a righteousness of my own, that I can save myself. I'm telling you, whoever you are, you may have said, I believe. You may have been touched at various times, and you, you may have wept. You, you may have come forward in a meeting, and it never took. You were moved. You were touched. But you've got to say, I must believe in this person that he is the way to eternal life, and it's a person, the Lord Jesus Christ, that I'm putting my faith in, and I'm abandoning all confidence in religion, my self-effort, my strength, my background. He, this person, is the only one that can save me, only Christ. That is what saving faith will reduce you to. So the condition is believing. The consequences of believing, the consequences of our salvation, is you shall not perish, but you shall have eternal life. So the cause of it, the Father's love. Now, by the way, I like to say this. John 3.16 didn't say the Son loves you. It said the Father loves you. We always give the Son the credit for loving us. No, the Father sent the Son. For God the Father so loved the world. We've got this picture, this mean old God in the Old Testament. We'll call him Father or Yahweh or Adonai or we can't even spell the word, so we don't use him too much. But there, he's something back there, but he's mean. He's kind of hard on folks, brought the flood and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Hey, this is the same God that loves the world in John 3, 16. God the Father 
loved you so much that he gave up his most precious relational possession, his own son of whom he had fellowship with from eternity. That's what it cost him. And it's what he was willing to give for his enemies. The condition for getting this son is just to believe in him. And it sounds so easy. That's why I'll try to revisit it. And the consequences is you won't perish, but you'll get eternal life. It's simple, isn't it? It's the simplest. That's why John 3.16 has saved thousands of people, millions maybe. Been on rescue missions all over this country. Even Tebow's winning games on it. You didn't know I was that current, did you? Look at the youth guys. Yeah, I'm current, really. I'm totally into wherever I am at that moment. I forgot everything else. But notice the problem. Whoever believes in him, well, let me, verse, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You know why he didn't send the son to condemn the world? He found them already condemned. See, it'd be like, I did not send my son to make you sick. I found you sick. What is this? I want to cast the demon out of it. I'm telling you. Uh, it's, Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Does that sound like Romans 8.1? If you're in Christ, there's no condemnation. If you're believing in Christ, God, and the word condemn means to find a basis of guilt against you. There will be no guilt against you. See, to be condemned is to be liable to a penalty because you're guilty. Not condemned, not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now watch this. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because there was not enough empirical evidence or there wasn't enough apologetics. That, uh, we didn't have enough PhDs debating a one-world view. No, 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 no. Men don't come to God, not because there's not enough evidence, because they're morally perverse. They'd rather die in their darkness than to come to the light because they don't want to give up their sins. You'll go to hell for that choice. I see the light, but I don't want, I don't want it to expose what I'm doing. Well, I, I want to go to heaven, okay, but I don't want God messing with my sins, so I must stay away from the light. I'll stay away from the light. I want to go away from the light. And hell is ultimate darkness. It is the choice of those who flee the light. God will give you hell, for there will be no light. It's a moral choice. It's not a lack of evidence. It's not a lack of in. It's you inside. I don't want to come to Christ because I don't 
want to give up my sins. And I'm willing to go to hell for the choice. That's what he says. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. And John 1 says Christ is the light. And does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. It's interesting that those of us who choose to come to the light and to do the truth, we cannot proudly and arrogantly walk about. We're carrying out what God's energized us to do. If you want to come to the light, God will give you the strength and the energy to overcome all the sins that bind you, overcome all the darkness that blinds you. Do you want to come to the light, or do you want to choose the darkness? And that's what's so scary about standing before Christ at last, having never truly left your sins and come to Christ, and for him to judge you, the one you rejected, the one who died in your place, he will be the judge, according to John 5 and Revelation 20. It's the Son that judges all mankind. And why are you before me? Number one, you never chose to come to me. Two, let me list you the sins you chose over me, the Son of God. Let me tell you all the, uh, the manure of the barnyard you chose over the king of kings. All of the darkness, all of the evil, all of the stuff that you chose, you made a choice. You had a king, you had the father's love, and oh, how wicked the human heart is and how hostile the world. No, I'll just keep my sins, my loneliness, my pain, my isolation. I'd rather go to hell than to admit I'd need to come to the light. It's what's so tragic about a human life. Sin is a terrible taskmaster, even when you're out there. Oh, you're not in church, but it makes you miserable, doesn't it? Do you think the world's happy? What if the 49ers lose today? Gonna be a lot of drugs tonight. Gonna be a lot of booze. Gonna be a lot of blues. Because some people, their world rides on a game a year. Just think if you were a sports addict. To watch men getting 27 to 40 million dollars a year, dribbling, catching, fumbling balls, and that's your entertainment. Nothing wrong with it. If I find someone feed me at three, I'm going to swatch it with them. So I'm bumming off of my kids. Nothing wrong with that. But just think when it's your world. It's your world. Oh, man, we're going to the casino. Ooh, I meet you at Reno. Yeah. Ooh, well, what are you going to do? Well, man, you know, we got to pull slots. That's so much fun. I've watched them. I lost about, no, I've watched them, but you know, just, <laughs> That's entertaining to you. I mean, you know, everybody's got something. That, that, that's what you're really into. Yeah. How much you lose? Well, I'll expect to lose a little bit. Oh, you're heavy into drinking. Yeah. 
How has it helped your marriage? Do your kids know you? Sin is terrible. It's terrible if there was no God. Sin is terrible. And God comes in Jesus and says, I'm offering you a brand new life. I'm offering you light. I'm offering you the way out. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. In 19, um, let's see, April of 1998, Tim Valstrom emailed me this story that's said to be true. And uh, let me see if I can paraphrase it for you and simplify the issue. I've used it a couple of times but see, you can reuse things if you've been in the pulpit 40 years. You never got it the last time I said it, right? Uh, the story goes that years ago, there was a wealthy man who had one son. He was a widower. And uh, in his wealth, he became an expert in collecting uh, presses art and taught his son to do so. And they would go all over the world buying exquisite art. Uh, Monet, Van Gogh, I mean, they were, they were high dollar uh, art collectors. World War I or two came along and somehow or another this boy got recruited and uh, uh, word came to the dad that the boy was missing in action. A few weeks later, it was confirmed that he was killed in action, took a bullet to the heart, and uh, it was a heroic story of trying to rescue a man, bring him back to the trenches, but the boy was killed. Distraught and lonely, the father at Christmas time just sat in his den and looked at all this beautiful art that he ha had collected and was lamenting and grieving that he lost his wife and now had lost his only son. It was in great grief. Around that time, a, a knock came at the door, and uh, when he went to the door, there was a young soldier there with a package under his arm, and he invited him in. And uh, uh, the young man began to tell the father about his son. He said, your son was heroic. He rescued many men in the line of fire. He was an outstanding young man. And he said, uh, and I, I heard about your love of art, and he said, I happen to be an artist myself. And uh, he said, I brought this for you. And he said, it took off the wrapping, and what was it? But this young soldier had drawn a portrait of the man's son. Well, it wasn't world-class art at all, but at least it was a clear image of what the boy looked like, and the dad was impressed that he, he at least picked up his son's likeness. And so they talked a while, and uh, the boy left. After a while, uh, the, the dad was so captured by that picture and that memory of his son that he put it over the fireplace mantle, and that was, became his favorite piece, and he watched it all the time. In the spring, he came down ill and uh, died. And the 
message got out that this great art collector had died. There was going to be an auction on Christmas Day. And uh, all of this precious art that art dealers and collectors all over the world had wanted to buy, they wanted to be there for this. So they show up on this Christmas Day for the auction. And uh, the first thing put up to be sold was this soldier's portrait of the man that had died of his son. And some of the men, they got said, wait, wait, why put this trash before us? We didn't come here to buy a portrait of the man's kid. And uh, get rid when are you going to bring on the good stuff? And so there was an uproar in the auction house. And the auctioneer said, wait, wait, in the will, it says this piece goes first. This piece goes first. So from the back of the room, all of a sudden, there was a bid. $10. He said, I knew the, the man that lost his son. I knew the boy. I've only got $10 on me I, that I, in cash. I'll give you 10 bucks for it so we can get on with the auction. And as soon as he bought the portrait, at that time the auctioneer said, this auction's over. They began to roar and get upset. So wait, wait, we didn't, what, what do you mean it's over? He says, it says in this man's will, it's very simple. Whoever takes the son gets the rest. <laughs> and so uh, C.S. Lewis said it this way. Take Jesus Christ and God will throw heaven in free. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Take the son and he'll save you. And... Um, with that, I must keep going. We've got worship team coming. We put in the bulletin because you've requested it, a financial charting. Don't get depressed as we do sometimes because uh, I thought, wow, we eat by through 11. God blessed. It was a marvelous year. And guess what? We start all over. And uh, we do not uh, meet to take offerings but we desperately need God's help. And I pray as you see that financial thing, if you would pray, if you would pray with us. Uh, I mean that, pray. If you don't have it, pray uh, that uh, you can reach in the purse of someone next to you and, and, or something. But just pray God will provide it and let's keep it before the throne of grace. Our God will supply just like he's done for 40 years. Fathers, we thank you for the privilege of giving as worship. We want to give in response, nothing like the cross, nothing like Abraham and Isaac, uh, money. We're going to leave it all. We're going to leave it all behind. And I think of all the things that get done with money, how little of this world's money ever goes for the gospel. Help us as your children, quickly running to the celestial city, let us not be enslaved to greed, money, and more for me, but teach us to be givers in honor of the cross and the love of God. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.